You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So our Old Testament reading this afternoon is from Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now we'll turn to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The sermon that I'll be reading this afternoon is was prepared by Pastor Kim Riddlebarger of the United Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. The text is Revelation 21, verse 1, through Revelation 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink, without cost, from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, clear like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John gives us a panoramic vision of the history of redemption. He has taken us from the coming of the Messiah all the way to the end of the age. But after describing the final judgment in Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, John now gives us a glimpse of the new Jerusalem and the so-called eternal state. What is described here is what we commonly speak of as heaven. 
The first 20 chapters of Revelation have told quite a story through the use of dramatic symbols taken from the Old Testament and set against the backdrop of the Roman Empire, John has revealed the story behind the story, taking us from the demonically empowered Roman Empire waging war upon the Church of Jesus Christ to the final chapters of redemptive history, which describe the coming destruction of Babylon the Great, the fate of the beast and the false prophet, the defeat of Satan, and the final judgment. In the previous section of Revelation, from our reading, John describes the final judgment and that terrible day when the books are opened and all of the dead are judged according to what they have done. At the end of time, God will judge all men and women according to their deeds, whether good or evil. For those who do not know Christ, this will be a day of absolute terror, when all of their public and private sins are revealed, and when they hear the final and irreversible verdict of eternal punishment in the lake of fire, along with the devil and all those who have served him. But for the Christian believer, on the other hand, judgment day is not future. It is past. Indeed, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was punished for all our sins and transgressions, sins past, sins present, sins future. Because Jesus Christ bore the judgment of God, we will not face God's wrath on the final day. Instead of words of condemnation, we will hear words of blessing because of Christ's saving work on our behalf. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into that kingdom which has been prepared for you from before the creation of the world. And now in Revelation 21 and 22, John describes the glorious inheritance which awaits all of the people of God. In our text in Revelation 21, John compares the city of man and the city of God contrasting the beauty of the bride of Christ and the glories of the inheritance she will receive with what awaits the inhabitants of Babylon, the great, the bride of the dragon. In Revelation 20, verse 11, John told us that at the final judgment, earth and sky fled from God's presence and there was no place for them. Therefore, even as the final judgment follows immediately upon the destruction of the cosmos, so too the new creation follows immediately upon the heels of the final judgment when the new creation replaces the present heaven and earth. In fact, it is the passing of the present heaven and earth which prepares the way for a new heaven and earth, as described in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. John is making a distinction between two different orders of things, this age and the age to come. The current heaven and earth belong to this present evil age, which is even now passing away in anticipation of the glorious new creation pictured here. However, when John speaks of a new earth, the English-speaking ear hears a second earth, created after the first one. But in Greek, a new earth is primarily of a different kind than the present heaven and earth. This simply means that the present heaven and earth are temporary and destined to perish, But the new heaven and earth, on the other hand, belong to the age to come and are therefore eternal. They will never perish. Perhaps it is useful to think of the contrast between the present heaven and earth and the new heaven and earth just as we think of the resurrection of our bodies. Like the present heaven and earth, our bodies are also destined to perish. Because of Christ's bodily resurrection, the first fruits, 
One day, we too will be raised imperishable. And just as our bodies will be raised without loss of our personal identities, so too the new heaven and earth will be completely recreated while at the same time having continuity with the present heaven and earth. In other words, although they will be completely recreated with every trace of human sin purged from them, the new heaven and earth will be recognizable in the same way our resurrection bodies will be recognizable. Therefore, we should not think of heaven as eternal existence as disembodied spirits. Rather, we will spend eternity in resurrected and glorified bodies dwelling in the new heaven and earth in the presence of God, fulfilling the purpose for which we have been created. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul very clearly describes here the new creation being liberated from decay, just like the resurrection of our bodies. All things will be made new when the curse is removed. This liberation from decay is what John now is describing in our text. It is also very important to notice that John connects the cosmic renewal directly to the dawn of the age to come, and that this follows the final judgment. This means that the language throughout the Bible of a redeemed heaven and earth is not in any way related to this present age. This contradicts those who argue that passages like Isaiah 65 that we read are partly fulfilled in this present evil age, in an earthly millennium yet to come. Rather, Isaiah is referring to the same event as John is, only doing so in pre-Messianic terms. In Isaiah's prophecy, God declares, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Isaiah uses language of earthly renewal to point to what John now explains with much greater clarity after the coming of Christ. If we look back at our reading from Isaiah 65, we see a description of the new heavens and earth in exaggerated earthly terms. Verse 20, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Verse 22, For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Verse 24, Before they call, I will answer. Verse 25, The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Although Isaiah speaks in exaggerated earthly terms, he is depicting the new heaven and earth as an age in which there is no longer any curse. This is clearly a reference to the age to come, and not to an earthly millennium which is before Christ returns. So having considered this overall context, let's now turn to the details of our text. There is a major point of difference between this present earth and the renewed earth yet to come. Revelation 21 verse 1 says that in the new creation there was no longer any sea. Throughout the book of Revelation, the sea has been described as the abode of the dragon, Satan, the abode of the dead, the center of commerce, which is traversed by the unbelieving nations and dominated by Babylon the Great, who sits on many waters. 
The sea is the place of storm and tempest, cold, dark, and frightening to all of John's first century readers. But in the new heaven and earth, there is no longer any sea. This is not because God hates the ocean and the creatures who live in it. Rather, in the new heavens and earth, there will be no place for the dragon to hide, no abode for the dead, no unbelieving nations engaging in commerce. No longer will storms sweep the, sea, sweep the earth. Therefore, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more sea. In verse 2, John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The new creation which replaces the old is now called the new Jerusalem, also drawing upon a theme in Isaiah, which speaks of a glorious time of Israel's restoration at the end of the Messianic age. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets have repeatedly spoken of the redeemed Israel as the bride of Yahweh. But here in Revelation, John speaks of the church as both the heavenly Zion and the bride of the Lamb. Now he pictures the church as a new Jerusalem, which even now is coming down out of heaven. This reinforces the point made throughout the New Testament that the kingdom of God has already come and is even now forcefully advancing before the day of final judgment, when Christ's kingdom comes in all its fullness, and when all of God's enemies are destroyed, having received their final sentence. John refers to this new Jerusalem as the bride of the Lamb, a point which further serves to highlight the huge contrast between the city of man in all of its manifestations and the city of God. From Babel to Nineveh, to ancient Babylon, to the city of Rome of John's day, to the Babylon the great of John's vision, the allure of the city of man is like that of a harlot, based upon temporary gratification and a beauty which is merely a satanic deception. Indeed, as we will soon see, the beauty of the new Jerusalem, now radiantly adorned by her bridegroom, completely and totally transcends anything the city of man can offer. Once having glimpsed this scene as Jesus had, we now see why Jesus was, was not interested in receiving all of the kingdoms of this world when they were offered to him by Satan during his time of temptation during the 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus sees the city of man for what it is. This should serve to remind us that despite the attraction of the city of man, its glory is an illusion. Its beauty can never compare to what God is preparing for his people. John now reports those words which we desperately long to hear since we live in this fallen and sinful world full of sickness, suffering, and human cruelty. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The great covenant promise God made first to Abraham and then to all of his people throughout redemptive history, is now a glorious reality. Promise has become fulfillment. Type and shadow have become reality. God dwells with his people, who are fully redeemed and glorified, forever safe from peril and danger. God's people have at long last entered the promised land and begun their Sabbath rest. With God's people dwelling in his presence, all effects of human sin are now gone. Verse 4, God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And with the old order of things done away with, verse 5, 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The new creation has come. The former things are no more. There is no more death. There is no more suffering. There are no more tears. Everything is made new. Continuing in verse 5, Then the voice said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Creator-Redeemer God speaks the truth, for His great covenant promise is a present reality for the people of God. But this is not all He has to say. In verse 6, we read that the one seated on the throne said to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God has spoken of a new creation, and it is so. He also identifies himself as that one who is before all things and after all things, Alpha and Omega. In other words, he alone is the sovereign one who rules over everything from beginning of history until end. This means that all of human history is under God's sovereign control, and he has finally brought all things to the end or purpose for which they have been created. God's works, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is only the second time in the book of Revelation where Yahweh is explicitly quoted, and this is one of the great proof texts in scripture for the divinity of Christ. Here, God declares himself to be the Alpha and the Omega, while in Revelation 1, Jesus says that he himself is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The conclusion is obvious. Jesus is God. And he who is the living water will now give that living water to his people without cost and without limit. One day we will drink of this water and we will never thirst again. From the earlier chapters of Revelation, we know that those who overcome are those who remain faithful to the end, despite the persecution of the beast. They not only inherit the glories of the new Jerusalem, but God's covenant promise is reaffirmed by a sovereign oath. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for those who have stood stood before God in the judgment and sought entrance into the heavenly city based upon their own good works, or through the means of their own righteousness, they will not be granted entrance into the new Jerusalem. There are covenant blessings secured by Christ for those who overcome, and there are covenant curses which fall upon all those who reject the Savior. Thus, in verse 8, we hear the frightening declaration, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. With the covenant curses pronounced, John once again witnesses the glories of the heavenly city. Verses 9 and 10. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This stands in sharp contrast to the earlier vision in Revelation 17 and 18 of Babylon the Great, whose beauty was utterly superficial. Babylon was a whore and an idolater. 
But the new Jerusalem is radiant and pure, possessing a true and eternal beauty which human eyes have not yet seen. In verses 11 and 12, John says, The heavenly city shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. The high wall symbolizes the safety enjoyed by all those living inside. The reference to twelve gates guarded by twelve angels with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel is similar to Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly city and points to the fact that the heavenly city is the true Israel, her splendor far exceeding what the prophets had seen. The true Israel is also the church. This explains why in verses 13 and 14, John sees the following. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The fact that there are gates at each of the four points of the compass reminds us of the universal nature of the kingdom of God. The new Jerusalem includes people from every race and tribe and tongue under heaven, as we sang in Psalm 87. There are so many saints that they cannot be numbered. In addition to twelve gates, probably representing the Old Testament people of God, the heavenly city has twelve foundations, symbolizing the apostles who bore witness to the saving work of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone in the temple of God, where all of God's people now dwell in perfect peace and safety. The focus of John's vision now turns to the measurements of the city and to the fact that God is forever present with his people. Thus we read in verse 15, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The language John uses here is not to be taken literally, but symbolizes perfection. The city is a giant cube with each side as long as 12,000 Roman stadiums. But the angel is not finished. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick, 12 times 12. Now, the walls of the earthly Jerusalem were repeatedly broken through by her enemies, but the heavenly city is protected by walls which are absolutely secure. Once we are within her walls, we are forever safe from our two great enemies, sin and Satan. Nothing can harm us because we now dwell in God's presence. Indeed, the beauty of the bride of the Lamb transcends human imagination. Verses 18 through 21. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone, jasper, sapphire, etc. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. The city is not only beyond beautiful, beyond description, but the full range of precious gems tells us that it is perfect, not because of the great worth of the gold and the gemstones, glorious as they are, but because God dwells here with his people. It is God's presence which gives the city its splendor, not the gems embedded in its walls, nor the gold which makes up its streets. 
But the full measure of God's covenant blessings can now be seen in verses 22 through 26. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What the earthly temple had pointed to, the building and its priests and altar, has now become a reality. The Lord Almighty and the Lamb now dwell together with the people of God. No longer is there need of a building which foreshadows the reality depicted here. What the temple once pointed to has now come. Furthermore, we read in verse 23 that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Indeed, the city radiates because of God's glory, not because the light of sun, moon, or stars reflects from the precious gems. There will be no more night, and its gates will always be open. This echoes Isaiah 60, where all nations come to Jerusalem to pay homage to Israel's God. As explained by John in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, the imagery here is not about material wealth, but about God's people coming from every nation so as to worship him upon his throne. So safe and secure is the heavenly city that, verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The heavenly city is the eternal home of God's elect, and this is what we should think of when we speak of heaven. Before we conclude... Before we conclude, however, notice that in chapter 22, verse 1 through 5, the scene John describes calls to mind two essential features of the Garden of Eden, the tree of life and the river of life which flowed out of Eden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What we lost in Eden is regained in the heavenly city because of the saving work of the Lamb, who has triumphed over all his enemies. And this is where the story of redemption leads, to a new Eden, an Eden far surpassing the glories of the Garden of Genesis. In the new Eden, we will not only drink freely from the river of life, but we will eat from the same tree of life which God closed to Adam and Eve after the fall. We read that its leaves are for the healing of the nations, which reminds us that all the nations have been healed once the curse has been removed. In the new Eden, all the nations are now joined together as one people in the heavenly city. We will no longer be divided by race, language, culture, or social status. We will all be one, dwelling together in the presence of God. Beloved, the the glorious scene described here will one day become a reality for all of the people of God. 
We will be raised from the dead in imperishable bodies. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more sadness. The curse will be gone, and we will fulfill the purpose for which we have been created. In the new Jerusalem, we will see God in our flesh. As Job once prophesied, and which John now confirms, we will drink freely from the river of life. We will eat our fill from the tree of life. We will behold the glories of God described here, completely safe and in perfect peace. Therefore, as we sweat and suffer, struggle and grieve in this life, let us never lose sight of what awaits us in the next life. Through the testimony of John, we too have seen the new heaven and earth. Its glories are beyond description. It is that place where God Almighty and the Lamb dwell. It will be our eternal home. For the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are our God, and we are his people. And this is our glorious inheritance, which God has promised to all those in Jesus Christ. With this scene before our eyes, let us not become weary of believing what is true and doing what is right. For a new heaven and a new earth await us, where we will dwell in blessed peace and safety in the presence of God forever and ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.